0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I
1: went from a sale of you know, $500,000 to in debt.
0: $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing, you get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the value builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. So I'm giving a speech the other day to a group of business owners. It's kind of my regular shtick on driving company value. And guy sticks up his hand in the Q&A period. And he says, look, why should I sell my company? Every time I talk to the broker who wants to sell it for me, he tells me all I can get is three times profit. Why should I sell it? I'll just keep the business and then keep all the profit over the three years and then still own the business at the end. And I'm on stage, deer in the headlights, had no idea how to answer his question uh, and fumbled through some crappy response. But, you know, since then, the last couple of days, I've kind of reflected on how I might handle his question a little bit more gracefully. And there's sort of a three or four things I would say if given the opportunity to do it again. And that is, number one, look, running a company is a stressful experience, right? We all bring it home at night. Uh I remember I, I had a chance to interview Tim Ferriss, the guy who wrote the Four Hour Work Week, a bunch of you know, among a bunch of other books. And I said, "Why did you sell BrainQuick in the company that he sold in order to become an author?" And he said, "You know, John, I would, you know, my my company only took a few hours a week to run, but it was like my brain was running antivirus software all the time. Right? Just the heaviness of the stress of it all was too much to bear." Uh, the second thing I would say to that owner is, look, we're in uncertain times, right? Um, We're coming off a 10-year bull run. Who knows what the economy is going to do in two or three years? I certainly don't. And today, you know, three times your profit today may look really attractive two years from now, three years from now. You know, there are also some ways that you may be able to structure the sale of your company. And again, I'm not an accountant, so talk to one. But there may be ways you can structure some of the sale of your company so that it doesn't attract the same income uh, tax that you would if you were just taking the money out as income. Uh, Again, talk to an accountant about how you can do that. So you may actually find that it has sort of a a favorable tax treatment depending on how you're selling and whether you're selling your assets and shares. Again, talk to an accountant. The fourth thing I would say is that depending on who you sell to, there may be an opportunity to sort of have your cake and eat it too, as the expression goes. In other words, you know, getting some liquidity, selling some of your assets, but also getting some upside uh in in a future opportunity with the company that buys your business. Um, and that's exactly what my next guest, Will Gilbert, reasoned. He started his company just 186 days. <laughs> after he began, he sold it. And um, the company was called Socium. And literally six and a half months after he started it, he sold it. Here to tell you how he got comfortable with that is Will Gilbert. Will Gilbert, welcome to Build to Cell Radio. Thank you for having me on.
1: Where are you right now? Uh, so right now I'm in, uh, Accra, which is, uh, capital of Ghana.
0: Why? Uh,
1: it's a good, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so my, my wife is, um, is a diplomat for the UK government and, uh, she's here, she's here all the time. So I do one trip a month out here, which is, um, a good opportunity to top up the tan as much as anything else. And, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's on, the, it's on the same time zone as London, which uh, makes things a lot easier for, for remote working. Um, very
0: exciting. So this is a I think this is a first call we've done, the first interview I've done from Ghana. So I'm excited
1: <laughs> to, uh,
0: to do this. But that's not where you're originally from. You're from the UK. Tell me about this company, Socium. What do you guys do?
1: Sure. So um, Socium is a, is a staffing business, it's a UK-based staffing business. We are based out of London. And um, there's two main sides to, uh, to the business. One is um, focused on helping fast growth technology companies to build technology teams, pre- predominantly in software engineering. And the, um, the other side of the business is, is focused more on large kind of enterprise-sized businesses. Um, so your sort of FTSE 250, FTSE 100 size, size companies that are Going through periods of transformation and change in assembling teams of of consultants um, who help those companies execute on those on those projects.
0: Staffing company. So essentially, a company, either a fast growth technology company or a FTSE one hundred company, will come to you and say, "We need five software engineers. We need them yesterday." Yeah, Do they come on site to the location of that of that company, or are they working remotely?
1: Uh, it's a bit of both. Usually, they'll be on site, or there'll be a blend of on site, off site. Um, they're nearly always uh, onshore onshore though, rather than it being an offshore
0: arrangement. I've always wondered how staffing companies make money. So, what's the business model? So,
1: there's there's a few there's a few ways in there. I think the, the traditional ones um, are we, we 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 find contractors. Say for a um, sort of three software engineers, and there's a, there's a cost per hour or a cost per day from us to them. And then there's a margin applied on top of that, which is, that's, that's how we make our money. And then there's a total charge rate to the client, which is rate to the consultant plus the margin.
0: Right. So, so the client, it, you know, for round numbers, the client will, will pay $100 an hour, you pay the, the consultants less than that, and you make the, the margin.
1: Exactly that. Exactly that. And then, you know, the traditional permanent hiring model of a percentage of someone's first year salary or package, depending on, depending
0: on how it's structured. I see. So if the client decides that, you know, I want this guy full time, you're like, okay, great. But that'll be a percentage of their, their annual salary. Exactly that. And
1: there's, you know, there's, there's, there's quantum pluses to both. So there's, there's a much more of an annuity revenue model to placing consultants. Um, but, you know the fees from from permanent hiring straight to the bottom line rather than it being nice. realized every period of time oh, nice. so like
0: nice yeah. bumps. so how did you juggle the cash flow? because my assumption, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, will but and if you can share it would be great, but but I'm sensitive you might not be able to you know what kind of margin were you working on, and again, maybe you, you can give us bar, you know broad strokes yeah uh, how much you know you charged out somebody for and then what? what you would charge the client for again if you can share a broad strokes would be great but then i'd be also curious to know about how you juggle the cash flow i'm assuming the margins were relatively slim but correct me
1: yeah so the um, what what you're paying out can vary wildly from sort of you know 3 400 pound a day to the consultant up to fifteen hundred sixteen hundred plus 1600 plus per day if someone's you know, running a big chunk of a program Um, but typically the margins will be anywhere from kind of 15 to 20%. I think Um, there's been a a push over the last three years where there's there's a lot of people that compete in our sector in uh, particularly in the UK and particularly in London. So that has squeezed margins down. Um, So actually what people tend to, people tend to fall into two camps these days, and one is they'll compete on price, um, and the other, which we try to uh, keep ourselves on track with, is competing on service and service delivery model rather than just competing on price. Because otherwise, you kind of end up in this race to the bottom scenario where whoever's cheapest wins, and uh, you know it's it's almost impossible to run a business on that model.
0: What was your um, service delivery? model like what made your service delivery unique from your competitors sure so um
1: on the on the contract side of things we work to a model where we will always try and preform teams um before they're deployed into a client so if for example you've got a team of say 20 people uh, running a transformation program um we'll, we'll 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 help the client by preforming that team and putting pockets of, of People together that have worked together before, worked together on a similar programs, so it reduces the management input from the client um, in getting that team gelled and effective and working towards a common goal. So, how did
0: you find the people? Like, do you have a roster of people that you just kind of farm out to different projects, or were you were you literally like recruiting a new team for every job? So,
1: generally, um, we'll always start with people that we've worked with before that are in our network or that are known to people that we've worked with before. Um, The reason for that is that you can work out over, you know, I've been doing this for just over 10 years now and you can work out who's, who's good at what particular things and where people's strengths and weaknesses lie. And similarly, um, what's proven itself over the years is that if there's somebody that you know and trust to be good at a particular thing, um they're very unlikely to refer somebody to you who is who is bad. Your referrals typically will work out because people will not want their name associated with somebody who's not um going to deliver. So sure. referrals form a big part of our, our business and, and, and curating and maintaining that, that network of associates is um is really key for us.
0: So back to my earlier question around cash flow. Because yeah. you're you're paying the consultants the you know by the hour, yeah. and then you're applying a a margin, um, fifteen twenty percent something like that, and then you're charging the customer. Yeah. but that's a lot of money going in and out, and the timing of that's got to be super super delicate. How did you yeah. figure that out?
1: So there's a lot of I think the staffing industry in the UK is um, is probably one of the UK's one of, if not the most mature markets for staffing. So there's a lot of um, products out there uh, from both the kind of traditional financial institutions like the large banks through to some of the smaller fintech players around supporting consultancies, the management consultancies and indeed staffing businesses with managing that cash flow. So traditionally, um, you go to a big bank uh, like a Lloyd's or a Barclays and uh, set up an invoice discounting facility with them where they would advance a portion of the, the invoice value to you and you would pay interest on it for as long as it took the client to pay. Um, we use something that's kind of that with some, with some technology boots. Um, so it's a, it's a much slicker platform for timesheeting and invoicing and, and payroll and all that kind of stuff and reporting. So effectively what you end up doing is invoice discounting the, the debt that the client has with you in order to pay the contractors, the consultants, and um, a portion of the margin in the middle. And then your risk is 30, 60, 90 days of payment terms against the remaining balance.
0: Got it. So I, I think of that as, and maybe I'm getting semantics here, but I think of that as kind of factoring where you're basically yeah. selling the receivable. Uh, exactly. And, and what would happen if the, the client uh, reneged and, and chose not to pay for whatever reason, they went bankrupt? Would you yeah. be on the hook or would the bank be on the hook?
1: Um, so in theory, we would be on the hook for that. We, however, um, ensure that risk, if you like. Um, so there's two large insurers who, Eula Hermes and Atreides, who are the, the, the two largest in the market that will will cover you up to, Ninety-five percent of of that debt. Um, so that if your client goes bust, your exposure is five percent, which is going to be, for example, either a third or a quarter of the margin. But you've 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 paid your you've 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 at least um, recouped the money that has paid the consultant and a portion of the margin. So actually, that risk management bit for us has has been really key in making sure that we've got an appropriate level of cover in place with with all these clients because. You know, whilst, whilst many of them are very big and financially stable, you know, we all remember 2008, 2009 and uh, the surprises that bought. So yeah, that risk piece for us has been, has been really key. Um,
0: but both the fee that the bank charges for the invoice discounting facility and the insurance fees got to nibble away at your margins.
1: It does. It does. And I think we... So as a, as a percentage, um, the fee we were paying in particular for um, the invoice discounting when we first started was considerably higher than what it is now. So what you'll normally find is that you can, you can use the, the growth in revenue as a bargaining chip to get a better deal on those, on those kind of services.
0: So ballpark, what would that cost you in terms of fees on, a, on an invoice discounting facility?
1: It depends on the, on, on the bank and what kind of facility you're using. I've seen as high as 3% of the invoice value. Um, and if it's a pure invoice discounted facility from a bank, you can get maybe as low as kind of 0.5%, 0.6% um, on an annualized basis. So if you're only drawing that uh, credit for, say, 30 to 40 days to while the client pays, then it's, it's actually a very low fee. And there's usually a service charge on top of that for having the facility, but it's not particularly onerous.
0: Right. Got um, okay. That's, that's super helpful. I'm sorry to get into the weeds of that, but I've always wondered fun. to know how, how staffing sort of uh, some of the mechanics of it. So you mentioned you've been in this business for 10 years, but I understand Socium started early January. Uh, yeah. 2019. So tell me about that. You came from the staffing industry and what yeah, prompted so, you start associating?
1: Yeah, sure. So I've always, um, uh, yeah, since 2009, I've been, in, I've been in the industry, always building teams, um, uh, profit centers and kind of um, billing, billing, billing teams, if you like, for, uh, for other people. Um, and towards the end of last year, uh, so this myself, will be
0: the my, end of 2018.
1: End of 2018, myself and uh, my co-founder now were sort of sitting around and uh, putting the worlds to right as we like to do in the UK over a pint. Yeah, exactly, in a rainy pub somewhere in the south coast, and um, we we were both kind of the mentality that actually, you know, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of good things that happen in our industry, but it does get a lot of bad press. Um, there's a lot of things that could be done. A lot better in terms of how the businesses are structured themselves, but also how they work with clients, how they are engaged with clients, and how they're adding value other than actually just finding people um, for our clients in terms of talent. And so we came up with a couple of different models of how how it could run, um, and then towards the back end of last year, and um, decided it was time to time to pull the trigger, and uh, we both. Both left our respective uh, employees at the time and uh, jumped in both feet first. So um, that is how, in a very broad brushstroke, uh, Sotium came to be.
0: This was in it, so it had its sort of initiation, its first opening day, as it were, in early January 2019.
1: Yeah, it was mid-2019. I think we officially kind of launched. Um, I, was, I was out of the country for most of January, took a long holiday and went off to wife for about four weeks or so. Um, and uh, yeah, when we, when we came back, um, we were fully into
0: the swing of things. So you get started and what was business like in the first few months? I mean, I, I understand it grew fairly quickly.
1: It did, yeah. So we, um, we, grew, we grew a lot quicker than we thought we would. Um, I think we set some reasonably high expectations of ourselves and we've, we've surpassed everything that we, um, that we set, uh, which is great. I think there was, um, there's been some things as a result of that, that we let slip. So, our um, our marketing and branding, for example, which I thought was going to be super, super important. Um, is not what it could be, but actually it turns out that's not super, super important. Um, our, our industry is very relational, the same with any kind of professional services business, I guess, and actually what people care about is the service and you know, the people that they're buying from, um, rather than what, how, you know, how good the website is and your social presence and that kind of thing. Um, so actually a lot of the things that we thought we focus on in the first, say 60 to 90 days, completely went out of the window because we were so busy delivering for clients, which is much... I'd, I'd much rather have it that way around than um, have loads of great online branding and that kind of thing, but you know, lower revenue and, and no business. Um,
0: yeah, no, for sure. So, I mean, how big did you get Socium before you decided to sell it, in terms of your kind of revenue or... Uh, number of employees. What was, what were some of the stats?
1: Sure. So, um, we completed two weeks ago. Um, so very recently, uh, we are the six of us in the business, um, at the moment, full-time employees and, and, and growing. And I think we did the classic, uh, thing when we started out of hiring people that we knew and trust and we've 'Cause you know, you, you kind of you kinda of know what you're getting. And uh we both both what we've myself and my co-founder have worked with people over the years that we know very well, you know, we get on socially as well as professionally and we we we, we trust each other as a unit. Um so yeah, we've got up to six at the moment and, and and growing. Uh revenue wise, we are around the eight and a half million mark at the moment on an annualized basis. Um so I think for our For the financial year, April 2019 to March 2020, we're we're expecting and we're on track to hit in the region of 15 million, 16 million, something like that. Um, Somewhere in the middle of those two. Um, A fair bit of our business or a portion of our business is um, overseas. So it's currency fluctuation that we'll factor into that, but yeah, between 15 and 16 million is our expectation this year.
0: So zero to 15 million in revenue in the space of 12 months is pretty, pretty fast. Pretty good. Pretty what, good. what prompted you guys to want to sell? I mean, it seems so early in your life it cycle. Is, it
1: is. It is so early. So it was 186 working days, um, <laughs> from, uh, <laughs> From launch to completion of the uh, of the process, so which I yeah I think is a I think is a sector record, um, but I may be wrong on that. So um, what prompted us to do it is we, when we when we started out, we always knew that at some point we'd want um, we'd want an exit of of some kind, but that realistically that was probably going to be. Best case scenario with the wind in our sails three years down the line, uh, and realistically five years.
0: Let me stop start. you there because for some people that's that will be shocking to hear that you started a business to sell it. In fact, you know, I I talk I give talks to small business owners, and there's still a lot of them that really are repulsed by the, even the title of my book. <laughs> you know, this idea of building to sell is such a it's kind of a dirty thing. And it's like, you know, it it's just are some sort of greedy money hungry, you know, person. That's not what it's meant to say, but it, you know, you guys started with the view that you would have an exit. What was it that, what, Yeah, why did you want an exit so quickly?
1: Sure. So for us, it was, um, and it sounds a bit cliche, but it, it, it wasn't about the money associated with an exit. Um, I think, I'm a big believer that um, people fall into different categories when it comes to growing businesses and, and running businesses in particular. And generally, you'll either be very good at running an early stage business and getting it to a point um, before you either not necessarily get bored of it, but where your skill set is very different to that. Yeah, running a a zero to 50 million revenue business is very different to that of running a billion pound revenue business. Um, So what we wanted to do in some respects was see how quickly we could get to a point where um, there would be a transaction that would be beneficial to the business rather than just to us as shareholders um, and look at it as a long-term partnership rather than just, Taking some money off the table and going on to the next thing, which is exactly what we've what we've ended up with. Um, so it's a, it's what we've done is a, a strategic partnership rather than selling all of our business and you know moving on to pastures new. Um, but I think you know anything the shareholder value creation that comes along with that is a is a byproduct rather than that wasn't the goal when we started. Um, it was build a good business that's got value in it, and delivers great stuff for clients, and then as a result of that, value will come.
0: Got it. So back to my original question: What was it that triggered you to sell just nine months after starting?
1: Sure. So we um, we kind of accidentally found ourselves in a in a process with um, a company which we we. We is not the one that we were acquired by in the end. Um, where I know some of their leadership team from the industry, it's a, you know it's a, it's a small world, um, and they were going through some M and A activity um, and looking to roll up um, some smaller companies into their larger company in order to grow their tagar rate and then look for a better exit for themselves.
0: And so after a few, um, Kager being competent annual growth rate for those following along at home.
1: <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. Sorry. Um, and. Uh, after several meetings in with them. Um, we thought, okay, well, this is looking, um, this is looking like everyone's taking it pretty seriously. Are these, are these the people that we definitely want to kind of get into bed with for want of a better phrase, or should we try and have some other players on the pitch?
0: But how do you accidentally get into the conversation? That, that's well, it was,
1: I, I suppose, so the conversation came about um, over a coffee with them. I, I think maybe perhaps naively, um, on, from my perspective, that was their intention from the start of the conversation, and uh, I hadn't realized. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an unplanned um, process, perhaps, rather than it being anything formal through a broker
0: or. Okay. You know, so they reach out to you say, Hey, Will, let's get a coffee. I'd love to you know, chat a little bit. And you didn't think much of it, but it quickly accelerated into an acquisition conversation.
1: Exactly that. Exactly that. Yeah.
0: Okay. So where do you go from there? More players in the pitch? What do you mean by that?
1: So I think what we, we what we wanted to do is have a view of the market and who else, you know, if, if we're going to have this process going on, we might as well, have this process going on with two or three companies rather than just one, because um, the process will either complete and there'll be a transaction at the end of it or it won't. so let's get some more um, let's get some more players on the pitch and make sure that we're getting the best strategic fit um, for, for, for our company. So um, I've always been a, a, you know, a, a big fan of networking within our industry, which a lot of people in our industry are not, ironically. Um, So there was a couple of other conversations that that I had in my diary, sort of informal catch-ups, and um, we used those to start sparking some interest in our our business, in the market. And um, that kind of snowballed into... Getting into uh, getting into a process with um, with some other, with some other companies, one of which we ended up uh, being acquired by.
0: So, who are the other companies? These were all staffing companies.
1: They're all staffing companies, yes. Yeah. So, there was a one was a private equity quasi VC company who have an interest in a lot of different businesses um, to varying degrees, um, and so almost like a, a multi brand business, but it was effectively that that top co shareholder. Um, and the other one was, uh, was, was, was Pfizer who are a, again, a multi brand recruitment business, very focused on, um, financial services. So they do very little within technology, which suited us well because that's, that's very much our market.
0: And how did you raise the specter of an acquisition? Because clearly in your first coffee with your 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 contacts, they came to you. But, you know, I'd be curious to know how you raised the idea of an acquisition with Pfizer and the, and the VC private equity backed group. Um, because there's always that delicate dance. Well, I'm sure you had to do it yourself where it's like, you kind of want to bring it up, but you don't want to look desperate. So how did you sort of, stick handle what, what did you say to get them you know interested in the conversation yeah
1: so um the the initial conversation with pfizer actually was um sparked off from them reaching out to me for a, for a, for a, for a coffee or you know meeting and um we had uh we I, I identified that their that you know their leadership team's one that's gone through a lot of m a stuff in the past and actually at that point in time what i was after was advice so um, I met with their, met with their, their, their CEO and was, was asking him about what he thought of the process that we were in, whether it was too early, things along those lines, because he, he's kind of been there and done it a lot of times on both sides of the fence, both as an acquirer and as a seller, um, which generated some more questions from him. And then as a result of that, um, we ended up in a, having a very different kind of conversation. <laughs>
0: And was Um, there a little part of your, I mean, we've all had the give me some advice conversation where we know there's sort of an an ulterior motive that we hope will kind of come out of them providing advice in your mind. Were you, did you kind of secretly hope that they would, they would, they would have that interest as well? Or were you, were you genuinely seeking advice and without any sort of agenda?
1: I mean, no, at that point we, we, genuinely we were seeking advice with, with no ulterior um, motive, you know, we were, so we would have been about five or six months into um, I think five months. Yeah. Maybe it was June and six months, we were five, six months into running the business, you know, up until that point and the first process acquisition had been the last thing on our minds because we've been focused on building, Building the company, you know, doing good things for clients, all of that stuff, rather than thinking about the exit. So it really did fall in our lap. So uh, it, there was there was that conversation and a couple of others I had like it from other people I know that are you know trusted and well known in the industry around just generally seeking advice and whether this was the right thing to do for us and all the myriad questions that go along with that. So yeah, to start with, it was uh, it was a, a completely unagended um, conversation which just fortuitously ended up in uh
0: before the conversations changed from advice giving to acquisition you know conversations what advice did they give you like what did they tell you these firms that were steeped in this stuff
1: so a lot of it was around um making sure that we did the deal for the right reasons um if we were going to do one at all and being really clear about what those reasons were in our heads um, before we started like, getting too far down the line with with anybody, which was useful um, because in amongst doing all the M and A stuff, you've also got a business to run and grow and all the uh, all the fun stuff that goes along with that. Which is you know, so.
0: What were your reasons? So, um, what the, the, the uh, so the two the two big
1: things for us were. Um, being able to, um, with, with the view that we'd set the business up and we were looking to do an event three to five years down the line, typically how businesses are valued in our industry is a multiple of EBITDA or a multiple of, of, of operating profit. And that multiple um, and what it ends up being depends very much on the mix of annuity revenue within the business, spread of clients, um, diversification in different sectors, Things, things like that that make it as a safer bet for the acquirer, right? Same as any business, I guess, in that regard.
0: What, so. what did you think the multiple of EBITDA would be based on on your breakdown of annuity versus kind of one-off revenue?
1: So we thought at that point in time that we'd be trading at around the three to four times mark, given okay. the business. We thought that would be a good transaction. Um, the so the reason back to the original question the, the, re, the, the rationale behind doing a deal was that if we had been partly if we were to be partly acquired by a larger group then in two three four five years time we're going to be in a position to get a much better multiple for the remaining portion of the business than we would do if we were just trading off of our own three to five year trading history
0: because that the overall multiple of the group would be that much larger because it would be a much larger group of of, of folks stitched together.
1: It, exactly, and and that actually, and this wasn't something that we had thought of going into the process, but it became really clear to us during the process was that if we looked at a business that did something in the same sector as us, so still still a staffing business, but that was operating in a completely different sector within that to us that would add some diversification, um, for us and for them. Um, and there'd be some, you know, there's a lot more we can do then around uh, sharing with clients, uh, leveraging different relationships, all of that kind of stuff. So what we decided we wanted to do was go down the route of, um, doing a partnership with a business that was going to not cannibalize our business or, or, or theirs, where we'd be crossing over with each other. Um, which is what we ended up with—almost um, perfect fit in that regard.
0: So you're thinking that the company's worth kind of three or four times EBITDA. You, you hadn't even had a full year' financials yet. You're still like 158 yeah. days in, so or 186 days in. So I guess you had a sense of what your profitability was, but it was, I assume, it's kind of an estimate at that point.
1: Yes, yeah, so we knew. Well, we we, we we knew exactly what we'd done to that point, And we had a projected view of what we were going to do for that year or this year, the year that we're still in this financial year. Um, and then the two, the two subsequent years. So we also thinking that we, I mean, albeit that was very early days in the business, we've not been, uh, we've never missed a financial metric. Um, we've, we've exceeded all of them. So we could, we, we knew with some certainty what we were going to produce this year and next year, all things being equal with, uh, with the economy and uh, and Brexit of course as well yeah yeah, yeah. um which oh, is right. yeah hot topic so um from that we we you know and talking to people in the industry we kind of got a view that yeah three to four times for an early stage, stage business was was going to be about right with our revenue mix
0: um, and so did you get did you get to the point will of formal Kind of letters of intent uh, with a variety of folks, or was it just Pfizer who actually put put an offer on paper you?
1: So we um, we got to that point with Pfizer before we got to that point with anybody else, and um, which is which is funny because they were not the first into the process, um, but it was clear that it was a good strategic fit for them and for us. So that was, that was, I think we ended up at that point with them first because that's where our energy was focused. And, and likewise, that's, you know, it was, it was, it was a big deal for them. It was a, it was a focal point for them.
0: So what was, what was your reaction to the initial offer when they put it in in on paper for you? It was exactly what we discussed. There was
1: no kind of low balling or, um, messing around and trying to snip at the edges it was um yeah it was it was almost uh i was kind of waiting for the um throughout the, the rest of the process we are kind of waiting for them to say that they'd found something or they wanted to readjust it or or you know whatever but it started off as an adjustable set of heads of terms or LOI um and we thought there would be some adjustment to it but um we completed at 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 what was on the original uh, heads of terms so
0: and so you, had, I, I don't know that term, uh, heads of terms, but assuming it's a synonym for letter of intent, is that? Is that it, yeah,
1: different? sorry, it's the, uh, probably the anglicized equivalent.
0: Yeah, yeah, fine. So you had this sort of LOI or heads of terms where you'd agreed. So these are conversations you had leading into the preparation of that document. So you'd orally with the acquirer sort of talked about what the deal would look like. So it wasn't a surprise when you saw it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So they, they knew what our expectations were, um, at that point. And similarly, we knew what, um, what their expectations were around realizing value from the deal themselves. And I think oftentimes people try to almost take too much off of the table. Um, from what I've seen, uh, in, in their deal in, in so much as not leaving anything on the table for the acquirer, because fundamentally it's a two way thing, it's gotta work for whoever you're partnering with, it's gotta work for you as a business as well. Um,
0: okay, so even- you've alluded to it a couple of times, and, and so let's get into the, 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 the deal itself. It, it's, uh, you know, sometimes when people imagine, well, I'm going to sell my business, I'm going to sell hundred percent of my shares for cash and I'm going to ride off into the sunset. It doesn't sound like that was the structure of this deal. So what, what was the structure? What, you know, did you get some cash up front? Was it all sort of a rollover of your equity into theirs? Like, how did you structure that?
1: Yeah. So they bought um, a, well, effectively it was a partial acquisition, I guess. So they, they bought um, 51% of our company. Um, at a pre-agreed strike price, which is linked to the operating profit of EBITDA of this financial year. So we already had six months at completion of that baked in. Um, so there was, a, there was a cash component up front, which was linked to our cash and our accounts receivable and a few other things um, at that point in time.
0: So, the, so just to be clear, that was... Um so, you'd agreed to a, a kind of a, a presumably a multiple of EBIT once that, you, that they would pay once you've had your first completed financial year? Once,
1: yeah, they- once, we've, once we've got to, so from the period April 2019 to March 2020, that's the period okay. on which we are judged on effectively. So, the,
0: but- has the cash changed hands yet, or do you have to wait till March 2020 before that payment goes through? Yeah, some has.
1: So there was, uh, in addition to that, there's, um, there's a payment which was linked to our, our actual cash and our accounts receivable, which was the amount that was completed that was, that was done on completion day. Okay. So that's changed hands now and all, uh, all done and dusted. Um, and then the, the next tranche will be after, um, uh, after, after March. Got it. That's helpful
0: for sure. And so, so now you, you sold 51% of Sosium. You, you guys continue to hold on to 49%. The presumably, um, is that now that 49% is that now rolled into whatever the equivalent of shares of Pfizer would be in that?
1: Do you no, really- so we've, so we've, um, we've managed to, to retain um, operational independence as well. So our remaining shareholding is in our company. Um, we stay as a separate legal entity, albeit we've got a new shareholder and part of a bigger group um, in our own offices run by myself and my co-founder. So we did the other thing that was important to us in, in whoever we, we, we partnered with was that we kept that. I think we, We've worked. We've worked for uh, other companies for long enough to know that we didn't want to go back to a situation where we effectively had um, a boss, if you like. Um, not mm-hmm. in a kind of a we want to have a really chilled out existence sort of way, but we wanted to have the autonomy to run the business in the way we wanted, um, which is something we we achieved.
0: Fantastic. So you've got Socium continues to run independently. Um, yet you've got this. This obviously this shareholder. How is having the shareholder um, affected your day-to-day decision-making to date?
1: Um, it hasn't really had much of an impact uh, at all. Uh, in fact, it hasn't had an impact at all so far. I think there's, there's you know, there's only, the only things that we are operationally restricted around is um, negative control. So things like issuing more shares for obvious reasons, um, raising large sums of cash or, or kind of, if we decide that, instead of staffing, we want to go and sell tennis rackets. Um, <laughs> we'd, have to, uh, we'd have to consult the one to get their approval, but the actual day-to-day running of the business is, um, is as it was. And, and, you know, we'll, will continue to be that way. Um, yeah, they're a good bunch. They understand culturally where there's, there's differences and similarities, um, because of the sectors that they work in, but,
0: um, and what options do you have, um, so, so what's now your end game? I guess so. You've got forty nine percent of this company. What, what do you see as the end game?
1: So yeah. So the plan the the the, the plan was that we would um, roll up into their group as as as, as, a, as a group company, effectively, um, so that at the point that they the combined EBITDA is 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 of a suitable level and the group is is prepped and ready that we can sell. The group as a whole, with us as part of that, and then achieve that higher multiple that we were seeking when we when we first entered into uh, into the conversations.
0: Um, yeah, private equity companies call us the second bite of the apple. Right, we're that's it. That's, it. that's second <laughs> tranche of your equity, um, which you sell at a at a higher multiple. And and it's not yeah. always, I guess, anything you've done per se, but this is just you know, bigger companies get better multiples. So if you're stitched together with you know ten other companies, you'll get that. Um,
1: exactly. I think the other, the, the final thing really that we were looking for, um, outside of the roll-up value and um, the diversification in in sector and client base, was infrastructural costs. So I think we said earlier on that the cost of effectively the cost of money for us at our revenue point is much is still much. You know, it's it's vastly cheaper than uh, where it was nine months ago when we were you know smaller smaller business but um as part of a much bigger group that's going to come down again dramatically so there's a lot of um efficiency gain we can we can take from that in terms of because you
0: can get better rates on the invoice discounting facility and the insurance rates, product. yeah yeah exactly
1: and things that that's probably our single biggest cost at the moment is is that invoice discounting and um credit insurance, if you like. So mm-hmm. by being part of that bigger group, we can, we can use what they've put in place um, to get some better economy of
0: scale. Fantastic. So if you had it to do overall, again, from the start, what might, I mean, it sounds like a pretty good ride to be, to be honest, <laughs> 186 days in, um, what might you do differently if you had so seem to do all over again?
1: Well, what might we do differently? I think, um, I think the... The biggest thing we probably do differently is we would grow faster at the start um, than we did. I think we we probably had another gear or two in there. Uh, in terms of in, when to say growth, I mean in terms of our internal headcount um, and the number of people that work for us. I think we probably could have pushed that, but um, we were reasonably risk averse around cash flow and stretching ourselves too far. Um, I in in we've we've both worked at companies um, myself, and my co-founder, where and me in particular, where we've seen kind of hiring for the sake of hiring and that sort of people. And I, I don't know if this this is specific to our industry. I've seen it in a couple of others as well. But people kind of see the huge headcount as a um, almost a trophy, and mm. actually, that's that's what we're more concerned with is is the quality. Um, in terms of quality of output and quality of delivery to clients and, the, and then the profitability per head because you can have uh, you can go and hire a hundred people tomorrow right if you 've got the office space and uh, and you can find them, but actually having them effective is uh, is a completely another different uh, different different game altogether so I think we probably would have gone somewhere in the middle and grown the team faster than we did um, whilst trying to kind of not roller coaster it. That's probably the biggest thing.
0: Have you and your co-founder had any, um, seller's regret where you've, you've kind of wondered, did you, did you do the right thing? Have there ever been moments where you thought, wow, we had, we had this juggernaut of a company and, and, and now we're no longer the only shareholders at the table anymore.
1: Um, Almost daily when we were going through the process. Uh, but I think we, to varying degrees, but I think um, it's, it is unquestionably for us the right thing to do. Um, given, given the reasons that we set out when we started the process off or when we kind of got halfway through the process.
0: What was it that gave you that, that stick-to-itiveness the process that was arduous and you're wondering why are we doing this what was it I mean were you were you keen to get you know your first rung on that ladder of, of financial success where you kind of secure that uh, that nut? was it was there some other yeah. sort of driver to, to make you want to do it
1: I think it was um yeah it's partly that and the kind of dogmatic dogmaticness of um, of, of myself and my co-founder, I think, um, we, we saw it, we definitely saw it as an opportunity and, um, one that should be pursued. So we, that's, that's exactly what we did. I think, um, there were, you know, there was, sort of, I think we had a lot of the conversations up front about whether this is the right thing to do or or not. And by the point we were all in agreement on that, um, it was a, it was a pretty clear path to, um, to the, to the end goal, but, that's not to say that you know you didn't get the odd, uh, like I say, almost daily kind of niggling doubt about whether this is the right thing to do or not. Um, the other thing to bear in mind, of course, uh, particularly in the UK at the moment, is you know we've got Brexit looming, which um, is invariably going to have an impact on the economy. Um, we're overdue a recession, so um, there's a few other legislative changes coming in, uh, which the UK government are introducing to our sector, which start in April next year. So actually being part of something bigger, um, at this point in time, uh, is probably not a bad thing from a stability perspective. Mm -hmm. So we've, uh, yeah. So there was a, there's a few reasons that went into it, but, um, we were happy with where we ended up.
0: Have Um, you bought yourself any, any sort of trophy to, to celebrate the win?
1: Uh, not yet. No, I think that might well come after, um, after April, but for the moment, it's all kind of heads down and, uh, focus on, focus on getting to that point and then focus on carrying on growing from there. What are you uh, going to buy in April? I'm not sure. Do you know what? A lot of that will depend on what the, what my wife will, uh, will sign off on. Um, <laughs> is, uh, definitely the, uh, she's definitely the boss in that regard.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, well, I'll keep you married for a while. That's good. <laughs> right. uh, well, listen, Will, I really appreciate you, you spending some time and sharing the story. If people want to learn more about Socium and, and what you do, what's the best place for them to find you or the company?
1: LinkedIn uh, LinkedIn's probably the best. Um,
0: so There's yeah, got to be LinkedIn. a few other Will Gilberts out there
1: there is there is a there is that you know what there's not that many but there is definitely a few so uh yeah it's will gilbert um at socium
0: um and that should uh, should find me socium is s-o-c-i-u-m and we'll put that in the show notes as well will it was great to have you
1: thank you very much for having me cheers cheers bye Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrilow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit system.com John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry.